and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Hello? Hey, Andy, it's Jeff. Hey, man, how are you? I'm good. What's happening on your end? Um, not too much. I'm sort of messing around with some new um, pieces of gear equipment, I guess, that, um, well, that Tom has loaned me, so uh, I'm reading a manual. Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield. This week, we have Vetiver's Andy Kabak discussing The Flying Lizard's Fourth Wall. Flying Lizard's Fourth Wall. Yeah, it's a weird record. I don't know why. I guess I chose it because... Um, I was trying to think of something that um, folks could find. I have a lot of records, and a lot of them are kind of weird and obscure and aren't on Spotify or streaming services, and I noticed this was. And um, and I was just flipping through stuff I had trying to come up with something, and this struck me as one that is very unique and um, in its approach a little bit and also just in the way it sounds and the circumstances that created it, I think. So from a recording aspect, it seemed like it might be appealing. Yeah. So, I mean, do you know much about the history of this record? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, uh, Flying Lizards is mostly David Cunningham, who's like a composer, experimental guy in the UK. And um, they had a few record deal with Virgin um, based off of uh, singles they did early on where they covered um, Money. Um, and they also did Summertime Blues, and they had a big hit with Money. And ironically, he recorded it for practically nothing, and um, it took off, and so they had, like, the Virgin signed them for a, a couple records. And the first record they did wasn't that successful except for the single Money on it, and then this one was sort of the follow-up. The first one, his idea, as I understand it, is to just kind of gather people he's almost like a home recordist um and he's very much an amateur in some ways uh certainly like playing instruments but he just gathers different people and um collects and curates their editions and you know builds pieces off of that so i think the first record they spent they did rather quickly and then this one apparently they took like 15 months to make but they did it in the different scenarios and he would have people play things and then strip things away. So um, there's some, you know, um, stuff, you know, and it's a, he himself uses tape loops and does sort of experimental things. So that undergirds everything. But um, that's my understanding of how, and this record was even less of, it wasn't critically lauded and it didn't do anything for, for the label or, you know, they didn't sell any copies of it. And in fact, I don't think it was released in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit like a Roxy Music kind of deal. Yeah, I mean, in some... there And there are even some melodic aspects that I think remind me of that. Certainly in their push towards ex experimenting and trying to, you know, um, engage with pop music. Um, I think I read somewhere that the reason they even did money was um, as sort of a, a joke comment that one of David's friends had mentioned that almost all successful pop songs are either about money, sex, or cars. So there, he just he had that forty five and liked it, and then just decided to try to do money. But um, there's some good interviews with him online. There's an old one 
from an Australian, um, you know, uh, an interview done in like 1980 based off the success of money. And he just looks, the woman's asking sort of like really strange questions. He doesn't quite know how to explain uh, or deal with the way he's being pigeonholed as a normal sort of band or process. It's, uh, he has a, he definitely comes at it conceptually in a different way. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the record has a very unsettling and sort of broken sense about it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, I've heard it enough times that to me it gels together as a record, though I think some of the criticisms is that it doesn't, it's too disjointed and, um, sort of strange, but I find that it's one of those records that you have to kind of like enter into its world a little bit because the vocabulary and what's happening is so sort of strange and the balances, the the balances of the instrumentation are odd. And um, it, my favorite thing about this record, I think, is that it pulls off something that I always think is intriguing when it works well, which is when sounds come into the space, they um, take the space. They're like bold and they have personality and they kind of command a moment and they don't just come in. They, they do seem to come in haphazardly, but when they come in, they come in with their like full strength. And there are so many sounds and the fact that the palette is like dub and um, all these other things, it's, it's like it's head spinning at times. And uh, I find that really fun. Yeah, I agree. I'm, yeah, I wasn't talking so much about the um, the broken sense of the entire record as I was the mixes, and it uh, a lot. You know, a lot of it does sound sort of like um, end of night rough mixes where ears are tired or something. I I don't know. <laughs> you know, it just yeah, the balances yeah. are very strange in terms of like what we expect from a record today. Yeah. And it's even crazier that, that he spent that long in the studio. I would love to hear more about what that entailed because um, he got crazy sounds on the first record, so much so that people started hiring him to produce the records. He did quite a bit of production um, for things that my understanding is he just like, apparently the, the snare drum sound or the drum sound of money he got because he set the drums up but then realized his cable, mic cable, was five feet too short. So he just left it where it ended and then he got the drums on that way. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I you know. listen to this record, I mean, there are things that I hear, I think, in our text conversation, I was mentioning, like, there's a tune on this record that reminded me a lot of Rapture by Blondie, but just completely bent. And... and um there were some really like Pink Floyd esque moments on New Voice, although tonally didn't sound anything, or mix wise didn't sound anything like Pink Floyd. And as I was listening to it again um, this morning, I was like, man, it it really feels like it's something that David Byrne was listening to uh, that might have influenced the Talking Heads. I mean, it just there's there's so much modern music on this. Flying Lizards record reference wise like I don't know if these people listen to this record or if it was influential on them in any way but something was in the in the you know in the ether because yeah and and maybe one influenced the other but I think this predated it because didn't this record come out in like 1981 or something like that it came out in 81 but like I said it didn't come out in the states although people used to avid music fans would be looking out for imports and things like that and trying to track these things down. So someone who is inclined to be interested in the next 
Flying Lizards record would maybe have sought it out, but this wouldn't have had sort of the impact that their first record did, which it did have an impact. And I think as a kind of mystery to some people, because it wasn't really clear who the Flying Wizards were. They weren't a band. They didn't play shows. They um, didn't really do a lot of interviews or press. They were more of a conceptual kind of thing. So um, they were a little bit of a mystery. And so I'm not sure what the reception of this record is, only that when I did a little research, it seemed as if people critically didn't rate it that high. But some of the people he would have been collaborating with would have been in the in the vicinity of in working with Eno and folks like that too. I don't know how much Cunningham uh, connected with with him and and um, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, there's that the, that's there's that song on here, um, another story where the baseline sort of sounds like I don't know if you, if you know Liquid Liquid and their that song Cavern of theirs, which is the baseline that was sampled for White Lines and. That didn't come out till 83. It's pretty close to it, the way it sounds, you know? And, you know, when I hear this, I hear groups like the Mekons and Gang of Four, there's like, there's a big post-punk element. Some things remind me of like Negative Land and the way the tape loops are used. And there's a couple of tape pieces that sound or sound like Terry Riley. And yeah, it's really all, it's really interesting. I, and, and I love the pieces where it sounds as if what you're hearing is sort of like the accompaniment to a, maybe a lead melody or instrumentation that someone else played that has been stripped away. So you're just kind of like, you know, rudderless in terms of where it's going. There's a song called New Voice that is kind of like that. The melody just kind of strolls along. It's hardly repeating or it's or, or it holds onto a phrase long enough to disconnect you from the overall arrangement and knowing where it's headed. It's disorienting, but really pleasing. And your point of Rapture is totally right because it came out the same year. Rapture is from 1981 too. Huh. Yeah. So maybe both of them were listening to something else that they've, they pulled it from. Yeah. You know, talking to people about their favorite records or records that, that they think are interesting, I guess is a better uh, way to put it. But maybe sometimes we forget to listen because we're in music all the time. And sometimes it, I find myself not wanting to really listen to music or listen to it passively to sort of free myself of the clutter. Um, uh, but to go into all these records and really and really dig in and listen has been so interesting because I've noticed all these different you know lines being drawn to other things that I know and then wanting to go back and do some research and timelining. And it's really expanded my my personal set. I I agree. I that that's one of the reasons I find it so frustrating that you know, if you were inclined to do that, you'd really have to either get a physical copy of a release um or you'd have to like surf on Discogs and hope that someone has entered that information because you don't get that information via streaming services or Apple Music or things like that. You don't get credits. You don't, you know, you can't connect some of those dots um, that way as clearly as you could maybe, um, you know, if you had a list of who played on something, you know. And on a record like this, it really matters because it, it his whole approach is to just gather different performers together and sort of get their um, 
you know, involvement. And then he curates, I, you know, my, that's what I'm assuming is happening. He's, he's the final arbiter of what is the piece. And um, in this instance, you have, you know, all these scenes coming together. Uh, you know, in the first album, he, there was a different singer um, that did a lot of the songs that they're known for. On this record, it's this woman, Patty Paladin. And she was a kind of a lower east side New York punk uh, performer who had a group called Snatch with another woman named Judy Nyland who did a lot of stuff with Eno. And I think they decamped for a while to the UK and I'm assuming that's where Cunningham would have connected with them. So that is so, I think also sort of tying in with that Blondie thing you're hearing is, is the vocalist is, is American and she's like, um, you know, she had records out in the 70s and definitely part of that whole scene. Yeah, I mean, it's specifically the groove on that one is... No, totally, yeah. And there's that one song that almost kind of rips off the groove of, like, Stones' Miss You. Yeah. Um, and, um, but yeah, like... Just to what you're saying, this record really pulls that out of me, this wanting to know how these people all connected, how he thought to do things. Was it happenstance? Did he, you know, there's certainly some repeat players from the first two records, but is it, did he think, oh, this would be perfect for this person, um, you know, um, and so I'll have them, but then I'll get them to do something that's out of their comfort zone. Everything sort of sounds like it's out of someone's comfort zone on this record. It's like, People are, you know, and, um, but it all, the lyrics are cool. Everything about it is like really interesting. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily easy listening, although some songs are super poppy. And I think it's hilarious that I guess, I don't know if the label requested that they do something akin to the first record where they did a take on like classic songs because they do a cover of Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up on here which is like you know but they it's totally perverted and, and not not perverted in that in the sense of that, but it's like it opens up with this uh distortion like this loops and static before it like kicks into the sort of disco keyboard and all there is for drums is just like a kick and a hi-hat And then it does this thing, it go, it morphs into sort of the style of, um, you know, what they would do with dub records or reggae. They, they had this style called like showcase style where, um, you know, the first part of the song is the vocal and then it just kind of immediately cuts straight into the dub for the outro, which is kind of what they do on that song, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. On these records that are a little bit more obscure, like you're saying, like the, the streaming services don't have information on them a lot of the streaming services don't even have some of the records people have sent. And so I've had to go and like, maybe it's on YouTube, maybe not, maybe. And it's a couple of things I've had to go like hunt out, find them used vinyl. That's what it used to be like. We used to have to go down to the store and like, it was more of a hunt and more of a pursuit and it took more effort to, to get what you wanted. Yeah, and you, and reading the record covers, like that's how vinyl uh, uh, was better than sort of CDs, because CDs might be plastic shrink wrapped, um, 
well, and vinyl too. If the vinyl had like the, the, the credits on the back, you like very often in jazz or something else, you could see who the players were and you could be like, oh, I love that bass player. Um, and you could spend some time in the store and dig around and see, oh, he's on this record too, or, or she plays, she sings on this one. So yeah, you, you make those connections that way. And if you are inclined to do that, you can certainly, you know, spend days on Discogs trying to track things down and seeing, seeing who plays on things like that. But I think it's a shame that that I, I keep, I, I would have thought that would have happened a while ago. I'm, I'm, I love Discogs and I'm glad they're, they do what they do. I had a feeling years ago that Apple would have like bought them or something like that to just suck up their data. And, and I'm glad it didn't happen, but you know, um, to just, I thought that, that you would have had some like hyperlinks, you know, you see someone's playing bass, you press their name and then all of a sudden you could see what other records they've played on and you could like travel through music listening that way, you know, it would be really fun to do that. You can do that. It just requires like, you know, you, YouTube links and, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're here, we're not going back. Yeah. <laughs> to go back to this particular record, this one stands outside of just the, even those things you just mentioned, right? I mean, it's, it shares it shares a bit of both, but it's a mongrel of both, right? It's the isolated, uh, the arbiter and the produ production decisions of David Cunningham, who mixes and assembles everything and decides what stays and what goes. But it's also his involvement with different musicians and people who are playing, who he gets to come to the studio and do whatever they do. But it's not like it's not a band. They're not, they're not all making these decisions together. They're not there for the musicians aren't there for the entirety of the project. They're just, maybe they came down the studio one day. And so, yeah. he, you know, and, but he couldn't get that on his own. Right. Like you're saying in COVID times with everyone sort of isolated working by themselves, or I guess you could fly tracks back and forth. So you could have a little bit of that. Right. Um, but you, you need that, that weirdness of, of being, if hearing something fresh outside of yourself or, or misplacing something or the context gets skewed and you stumble upon a different way of doing things. This is a really fun one. So I, th I thank you for sending it. Oh yeah. My pleasure. I hope people get to hear this record if they never heard it before. Cause it's, it's a really cool, weird record. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.